we basically got to say, look, no, we need to make sports as accessible to as many kids as possible in our community. Um, and we need to make it a quality experience. So uh, we're, we're just going to invest. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here on Youth Inc. presented by Audiorama. And as always, our friends in Invisalign. Week ba- weeks back, you guys might remember, uh, we, we took a trip down to Washington, D.C. as part of the Project Play Summit um, with, alongside the Aspen Institute. Um, we, 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 had, we had three really great panel um, members to, to join us for an episode. We had a member from the Positive Coaching Alliance. We had um, the director of the Eat, Learn, Play um, nonprofit started by Steph and Aisha Curry out in California. And then we had the director of the MLB slash MLBPA um, you know, organization, which is like a grassroots studying the best practices and the challenges facing both youth baseball and also um, softball. So th- that was an episode we had a few weeks back. I'm sure a lot of you um, enjoyed. So uh, Tom Ferry, who's today's guest, he runs the sports and society program um, at the Aspen Institute. And, and he also organized the project play summit that we attended. So uh, following our experience down there and the, and the great people that we met, we followed up with Tom and we were able to have Tom and join us for a really extensive sit down. And, and, and Tom is someone who has studied this for a long time. He was a journalist and now he joined Aspen Institute to build out the sports and society program and, and really has studied this for, for, for decades and his insight, his experience and perspective. I, I think you guys are going to find um, as, as a really good resource and a really good tool. So I'm, I'm excited for you guys to hear this episode. As always, thank you so much to our presenting sponsor, Invisalign. Uh, Invisalign is the number one doctor trusted brand, having transformed 12 million smiles over the past 25 years. Invisalign gives you the opportunity to make a trusted decision that can help you continue to build confidence for your child. Find your trusted provider at Invisalign.com or talk to your doctor. So now please enjoy this conversation with the founder of the Aspen Institute's Sports and Society program, Tom Ferry. Tom, thanks so much for for joining us. Great to be here, Greg, and and I'm so glad you're digging into this topic. It's uh, it's amazing to have a voice like yours uh, figuring it out. Well, well, I appreciate it. And I'll tell you what, we've, we've really been, you know, I don't want to say surprised, but we've really been kind of enlightened by what we've found. We've had some really cool conversations with not only, you know, f- the, the leading experts in this field, um, as I mentioned, you know, down in DC, when we got to visit a few weeks back at the Project Play Summit, but also just through different families and different parents and coaches and whatnot. But how I, be- how I became familiar with the Aspen Institute and how you and I actually got connected probably going on a few months now was we interviewed Dr. Michael Gervais. He's a nat, he's an international leading psychologist who really understands this field and, and, and where we're going. And at the end of the interview, it was actually episode one of you think I said, all right, Dr. Gervais, where can our families, where can our viewers and guests continue to educate themselves? What is a resource that they can find? And the first words out of his mouth was the Aspen Institute. And that, and that right there led me to being connected with you and, and obviously everything else has fallen into place. So for those, for those people listening and our, and our followers at home, give everyone an idea of what actually is the Aspen Institute? What are your goals? What is your philosophies? And, and just kind of educate our listeners to, to what your work is. Yeah. And so I would, it took me about six months after I joined the Aspen Institute to understand what the Aspen Institute is. Technically speaking, it is a not-for-profit educational and policy studies group 
based out of DC. And I, I'm sorry if I put people asleep with that there, but it, it is essentially a convener. It, it gets people around the table, leaders from the grassroots to C-suites to the White House to wherever to think about how to solve the most complex problems in our society, from poverty to access to higher education to on and on and on. So the way I got hooked up with this group was I was an ESPN investigative reporter for about 20 years, Outside the Lines, E60, Magazine, all that good stuff. And then I wrote a book in 2008 called Game On, The All-American Race to Make Champions of Our Children. It really was just the first journalistic survey of the landscape of youth sports in America. And I came out of, Greg, you know, from the same point of view you did. I was a parent. And I'm like watching what's going on on the sidelines. And I'm looking at the data. And I'm like, the parents are freaking out. And, you know, the travel teams are being created really early on. And I'm like, what? 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 How did this change so much from when I was a kid growing up in Miami, jumping over the waves, pretending I was Mercury Morris and maybe play, you know, play a little bit of organized ball. So anyway, the book laid out the problem. The Institute is a really good mechanism to solve problems, getting people around the table, developing, you know, identifying shared values, identifying what the problem is, and then developing shared solutions. So, you know, a complex problem that I'm looking to attack is youth sports which a lot of people didn't think was a problem. But you know what? If you love your kids and you want them to have a healthy life, you want them to be connected to other kids, you understand the value of sports. And the idea that some kids did not have access to a sustained quality experience in sports um, really bothered me. And I felt like needed to be figured out. So off we go. And I leave ESPN and join the Aspen Institute. And here we are. So, so in your research for the book, um, and now in, in your, in your work here at the Aspen Institute with the sports society program specifically. So, you know, I know the Aspen Institute is tackling very large problems. You mentioned poverty and I, and I mean, across the board, some really high level, you know, not only national, but international issues that, that are, have been facing, you know, civilization for a long time, but specifically in the world of youth sports, like what are those main pillars of, you know, you call them problems, you can call them issues or whatever, like what are those issues that you guys are really diving deep into it? Is it participation? Is it resources? Is it access? Is it coaching? Is it par- like, what, what are the areas? I'm sure there's multiple that yeah. you spend the most amount of time studying. So yes, 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 yes. And yes. So, it, but, but it all rolls up to the question of how do we build healthy children and communities through sports? How do we make sure every kid, regardless of background or ability has the opportunity to develop as human beings and maybe as athletes, you know, uh, through sports. How can we make sure that when they're, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 years old, that the situation that they're introduced to is helping them become better people and developing the social and emotional skills and the physical, you know, habits that can last into adulthood. Um, as they move into high school, how do we make sure that the high school model isn't just, you know, just the province of, of athletes like yourself, Greg, who are very good. I mean, what about the below average athlete or the kid who's got some disabilities or some kid who just hasn't played much or from a low income home and couldn't afford the, the, you know, the travel teams that led to all the training that leads to, you know, roster spots and playing time in high school. So it's sort of just this big question. If we, if we truly believe in the power of sports, 
to transform lives and transform communities and be a tool of nation building. Well, dang it, what do we, what's it going to take to make that a reality? Yeah, so I'd like to dive into just a few of those kind of pillar topics. They're, they're kind of the, the continuing you know, discussions that we, ha- we have here on You Think, but also that are being had all throughout the country, right? And, and the first one that I want to start on, because I think it's really at the, the foundational level of all this, and I'd be curious what your research study uh, suggests, but you know, the access to sports, right? Not only the resources, both from an economic standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint, from an access standpoint, there's certain reasons why certain regions of the com- you know, of the country or certain demographic groups gravitate towards particular sports. Do you guys see that more of a regional issue? Do you see that as a local kind of grassroots, or do you see that as a universal national nationwide issue that's facing sports in all areas of America? You know, it's a great question, Greg, and the, and. And the question that I have done a lot of thinking on over the past 20 years, you know, 10 years writing the book and then the 10 years trying to solve the problems in the book. And I still don't have a real good answer to it is, do we have a sports system or do we just have a sports ecosystem? Meaning, do we have a system that implies that you start here and you go here and you go here and it all is somehow stitched together? An ecosystem is just a patchwork of programs and schools and this and that, and it all comes together. I I don't know which it is exactly, but I will tell you this is no matter where you go. And I saw this in the book and I've seen this through, through project play parents generally face the same type of pressures, right? Number one, you know, when your kid is young, you know, zero to five, you kind of want to get them into programs and you start getting messages about, Oh, you know, the soccer program or whatever this, you know, start signing your kids up at four five or six. Great. And we know that in pretty much all communities, the travel teams now start around second, third grade. So that's the point where the tryouts start and the weak gets sorted from the strong and all the anxiety about that. You know, parents don't want their kids to be left behind by the bullet train that leads to opportunities later on. And so, I mean, really you can go to the South, you can go to Seattle, you can go anywhere you're going to find except for the very rural areas, you're going to find that travel team pressure, um, you know, at a very early age. And then, you know, you get into the middle school years and, 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 you know, also the schools start to take, you know, provide most of the opportunities, but kids start just, we see high attrition rates between the ages of like nine and 12 everywhere. We see that, Um, you know, and then we see certain, certain trends from urban versus suburban versus rural as well. You know, you can, you can, you know, and and that's the same, an urban um, set of challenges and opportunities is very similar in LA as as it is to Washington, DC, Um, a rural, you know, um, set of challenges and opportunities. And I don't know, Eastern Washington is very similar to what you'll find in Eastern, you know, Eastern Iowa. Yeah, I always joke with, with families and people that I talk to, we go to these big tournaments, right? And you meet people from California, New York, you know, everywhere in between and you listen to them and you sit around at night and you meet other families and you talk to them. And I joke, like we're all living the same life, whether your kid plays travel soccer, rec soccer, travel baseball, rec baseball, football, whether you live on the West or the East coast, like we all are living the same lives on a weekly basis. We're just calling it something else. It's just remarkable how our culture gravitates towards everyone having to be put into the same kind of bucket. And it leads me to my, my second question. I'd be curious your perspective of, 
I, I call it kind of the keeping up with the Joneses effect, right? There's a little bit of sports specialization wrapped up in this. There's a little bit of the, the debate between competitive, you know, quote unquote, travel ball versus local grassroots rec or, you know, traditional church league or whatever you want to call it. And what I find is a lot of parents, I mean, I even find myself in this boat, a lot of parents are making decisions that they don't necessarily agree with personally, Mm -hmm. but they're making decisions because the pressure of their peer groups around them, whether it's their friends, their children's friends, they're going down certain paths. And there's the fear that, yeah, I don't want to go down that path, but if I don't make that choice now at 10, there's no catching up. what, What does your research show and what does your study show? Like, how do we a combat that and b like how do parents deal with this pull between wanting to make decisions for their child at 10 but realizing those decisions are going to impact them when they're 16 right yeah no another great question and i will say this parents don't control the system right now they are presented with absolutely spend very little time in my work blaming parents for the problems in sports i think they're simply responding to a a system that is dysfunctional at best and broken at worst, right? And so, so true. I mean, really, we love our kids, man. We want our kids to be involved in sports. And if we if we perceive that they're going to be left behind, meaning, you know, forget the, the pro sports opportunity, forget even like the college sports opportunity. But if we if they perceive that their kid won't have a chance to even make the high school team or get playing time in high school, they're going to start to organize their behavior when their kids and second and third and fourth grade. Absolutely. Not out of like a crazy parent response, but almost as a conservative response as a, as a desire to preserve an opportunity later on for their child. You know, it's so, it's so true. I, I, it's so funny you say that. I was actually la- the other night, my kid was doing a, like a little basketball clinic and I was talking to a buddy of mine, um, another father, who, his son's a little older his son's uh, he's 13. So he's in seventh, probably a right. He'll be an eighth grader in the fall. And we were just talking about our experiences. Mine are a little younger and they're still kind of playing the one sport a season thing. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, I find myself, my kid loves playing basketball. He loves playing competitive, like travel basketball, playing competitive baseball. But what we're finding is when we go to our baseball team, for instance, and we go to a big national event or a team, the teams we're playing against, those kids are only playing baseball. So we're at a disadvantage. And then two weeks later, my kid's with his travel basketball team because he loves basketball. And when he walks into the gym, every kid and every team they're playing against only plays basketball. And then my kid comes home and he's like, I can't win in either. I can't really compete against the best kids in either sport, even though I love them both because I don't dedicate all my time. He's like, so my 13 year old kid is already feeling that pressure. Like I got to put my eggs in one of these baskets if I really want to compete on this quote unquote travel circuit. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, I get it. I get it. You know, you know, you're like the Jack of all trades, master of none, but you know, we're talking about middle school kids here. Like how do we make those decisions now and planning to when they're seniors in high school, who, who knows? Yeah. I mean, what I encourage parents to do, or at least what I did is I've gone through the process. I've got three kids, you know, 25, 24, youngest is 18. Uh, boy, girl, boy, eldest played college soccer, youngest intramurals in college, and the youngest, you know, played high school soccer. But as I, the way I approach parenting with them is I constantly ask myself, and it's like, what do I want? I mean, the goal is 25, like the age 25. I want them to have a healthy body and I want them to have a love of sports and I want them to have a certain least minimum skill set. 
that they can play beach volleyball, you know, play in the beer league soccer, you know, have all those social, emotional, you know, play golf. I mean, that's what a good looks like, you know? So that's what I encourage parents to do is don't think about how do I optimize my child's performance for age 12 so we can get to the little league world series or even age, you know, 15, 16, 17, where you might get looks from college scouts. I mean, think about 25 and then organize your behavior back from there. And what I think it, what that, what that means is you want your kid to, you want your, your kid to have access to quality coaching, number one, right? So you may not have to be like on the super elite team or whatever, but if you have a, your kid has access to a good coach who knows how to work with kids, a soccer coach knows how to teach a first touch, run a practice, things like that. They're going to develop and they're probably going to have an opportunity to play in high school, uh, you know, at, at some level. Right. Um, and, 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 and just make sure it's age appropriate and certainly up through age 13 or 14, try to make a, a multi-sport experience because that builds overall athleticism, which creates transferable skills. You know, this, right. I mean, you know, every pro athlete I've ever talked to can, can talk about how, what they learned from basketball that made them a better football player or, you know, Abby Wamba, you know, she's great headers in soccer. I mean, that, that didn't come from soccer or, you know, Rafael Nadal or, or, or uh, Roger Federer, the footwork they have in tennis, that those are soccer feet. They played soccer through age 12 or 13. or 14. So like, this is what parents need to know. And they need to demand a system from their local sport providers that allows for a multi-sport experience, at least I think through age 13 or 14. Yeah. It, when, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that the parents are just responding to what the system is offering. This is not, I don't believe this is the system that the vast majority of parents, at least the parents that I speak, that I interact with and speak with, it's what they want. I mean, and, but don't get me wrong. When, if, you know, if my children want to play, at a competitive level and they're capable and they're dedicated and they show that the discipline and the work yeah. ethic to do it, I am all for it. And if one of my child wants to play local rec and practice once a week and play one game a week, I'm also all for that. I'm a big believer in Taylor making the experience based on the needs and the abilities and the wants of the child. But at the same point, I want my kids to be able to play competitive sports on a seasonal basis and and at least locally here in, in, in Charlotte, where, where we live, that's not really an, an option, right? The travel baseball schedule that we are all in on, I have two boys that both play baseball. Travel baseball, we started up practice in February, or maybe no, in January. We played our first tournament down in Florida in February, and it won't be done until July. They'll get August and maybe a little bit of September off. Then fall ball kicks in. But the the problem is if you don't, play on that team all year round, they're going to find somebody else for your spot who will. So you're in this like weird balance between doing things in your heart that you don't probably want to do. Right. But to your point, do you have an alternative? Right. Right. Well, look, I mean, that's what we're trying to do within our program is we're trying to build up that alternative and there are different ways to attack that. Number one, like one thing is to lift the quality of the local rec leagues. So parents don't feel like. Let's talk about that. Let's let's dive into that for a second, because I think that's super important for a lot of our viewers, please. Yeah. I mean, look, the bottom line is, quite frankly, a lot of local in-town leagues are terrible experiences. Yep. The coaches aren't trained very well. You know, the, the, the better athletes, uh, the more organized, more motivated parents, they fled to travel. And it becomes, it feels like a dead end. And it often is a dead end by, you know, fourth or fifth grade, you know, um, and, and that has to change. 
that really has to change. We've got to lift the quality of the coaches. We've got to, you know, city parks have to be able to prioritize those leagues, not just turn over all the best playing field times to the, to the travel teams that are willing to write the bigger checks or whatever. We basically got to say, look, no, we need to make sports as accessible to as many kids as possible in our community. Um, and we need to make it a quality experience. So, uh, we're, we're just going to invest. We're investing coach training. We're going to invest in, you know, good uniforms that don't feel second class to the, to the, you know, travel team uniforms. Uh, we're going to do, and this can be done, Greg, you know, the summit, I don't know if you heard this one panel with out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, this guy named Jason Targoff, who's the president there, Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, has almost tripled its, uh, soccer, participation numbers over the past few years by investing in their, their, the, the quality of their local, uh, rec league. Yes, they offer travel as well, but they did all sorts of things. First of all, they got rid of the bad uniforms, fun uniforms. They renamed the set of like the silly blue bombers or whatever it was they, names of countries, Germany, Italy. And then there were kids in the community, like from Eritrea and places like that, where they would, they would, you'd, there'd be the Eritrean team. Now, not all the Eritrean kids would be on that, that team, but it was sort of like a recognition, like, well, we see you in the community. We're going to make room for you, right? They kept the cost low, like $85. They got the coaches trained. They didn't rely on just parent coaches. They went out to the high schools, to the soccer teams there, and brought in, you know, 17-year-olds who knew what, to, you know, what a first touch was in soccer, and they made them the coaches of the entry-level teams. They um, they found a travel league uh, that did not compete scheduling wise with the rec league. So the kids now all the way through eighth grade play rec, but some of them also play travel. They play with a rec team on Saturdays and they play travel on Sundays. So again, they've tripled their participation. And the parents, the parents are you know the wealthier parents in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, you know this is where Harvard and MIT is, but also is like you know pretty significant free and reduced. Uh, you know, poorer kids. They they love this model so much. They're like they donated like fifty thousand dollars last year just to cover the cost of the of the lower income kids because they want a better model. So to me, that's inspiring and telling me you actually can build up these rec leagues and and have them last at you know at least maybe through sixth or seventh grade. Uh, you know, so you can do that. But there are other ways to attack it. I'll stop there for a moment. No, but I think there's so much to unpack there. And I think the local, you know, people, you know, rec or whether it's church league or, you know, when I grew up, it was like the boys and girls club or the PAL, like those were the rec organizations at the time. But regardless of, of what they call themselves in each town, they're all pretty much the same model. And, and one of the, one of the members of our panel, um, a couple of weeks back from the project play, she actually was one of your keynote speakers, uh, Jean Lee Batris, who's with the MLB and the MLBPA. And, and, and me and her had a pretty interesting conversation. And I explained a story. I said, when my kids were coming out of rec baseball, we approached our local Cal Ripken was the association, our local Cal Ripken rec organization and said, hey, listen, we've had a great experience so far. The kids are about to leave. What we do here is called machine pitch. They're going to enter into kid pitch. Typically what happens here in town and pretty much everywhere around here is when kids get to nine years old, they go to kid pitch and there's a mass exodus of the rec leagues and everyone jumps into a, a travel team because they're going to play kid pitch and they want to play weekend tournaments and they want to go out and they don't want to play weekday rec tournaments with pitching and pitch counts and all that. So we approached our rec league and said, Hey, you have a huge issue on your hands. You guys are losing the best 15 kids in every age group. When they turn nine, 
And that's 15 of your kids that are no longer evenly distributed amongst your rec teams. And by product, you're losing kids, you're losing money, and you're losing kids who can help elevate the level of play internally within the league. And we said, let our kids stay associated with your rec organization. We will wear your uniforms. We'll represent your team, but don't make them play weekend games. Let them just do the weekday stuff and give us free weekends so we can go play and represent your rec organization, wearing your uniforms, representing your brand. And we'll bring some awareness. We'll go compete against the other top teams. We had a good group of kids and they said no. So guess what we did? We took the top 12 kids, 15 kids from the league. We went and joined and made our own travel team and they were forever gone and we never went back. And then, you know, at the year of the next year, the best 12, eight, eight year olds turning nine, they did the same thing and so on and so forth. Yeah. Like, yeah. and I said to Gene, I said, Gene, this is happening all across the country. And, and I think an issue with, with rec sports is they're trying to play to the least common denominator. Mm-hmm. Right. They're trying to serve the entire community and keep it safe and accessible. And I understand all that, right. but they're forgetting the kids who really want to play competitively and really want to do things right. And I believe if they just open their minds to serving the entire spectrum of kids from the kid who's never held a bat to the kid who wants to play weekend, cha- you know, competitive tournaments, they would have better luck keeping kids within the system. Right. And and they need to commit to the idea that competition is good. Yeah, this is this is this thing like, well, there's rec and then there's travel, which is competitive. And if you talk to this guy, Jason Targoff at at Cambridge, Massachusetts, he'll tell you the main thing is we committed to a competitive model. It's okay to compete. They've created like a a World Cup tournament at at the end of the season. All the kids are, but who's going to win the World Cup this year? Right. Yeah. Um, So it's okay to compete. It's all right to compete. What's not good is exclusion. Exclusion means that, you know, we're only going to focus on the best kids on the team. They get you know, a shortstop pitcher, all the playing time, all the priority. No, you got to commit to every kid, but create a competitive environment because most kids want to compete and they learn through competition. So the, the, the rec league folks, the advocates of rec need to really embrace the, the ethos of competition. It's Absolutely. It's, it's how you keep some of the, kids and the families who just are afraid they're going to raise non-competitive kids in your program is like, no, it's good. We're going to compete. It's cool. But you lose doesn't mean you're out. You're going to have another opportunity to, to play a game. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, there is a huge balance, right? Development is the ultimate key. Development in my mind is the core root. If you're, if your child's kid, your child's coach is not about the development of not only your kid, but the entire team, you got to find a new team. Development and progress and, and getting better incrementally over the course of a practice, a season, a years, whatever it is, to me is the, is the root of it. And that's developing a competitive spirit. That's, comp- that's developing skills, both on-field skills, fielding, kicking, throwing, but also life skills, hard work, determination, adversity, failure, overcoming obstacles. Like those to me are equal to learning how to do a backhand or learning how to kick with your left foot or, you know, whatever the skill for the sport is. But yes, there is a competitive nature that if you don't adopt and that you don't embrace, you're going to lose a significant portion of your kids because they're going to go out and seek an alternative. I I think, I think that's a really important, uh, you know, kind of line to be drawn and a balance to be found. And I don't have the answer to it, but but I couldn't agree more. Well, they're just people. We need to look at models like Cambridge. So, okay, what yep. exactly did they do? And then we need to be able to scale them. 
and the entities, the U.S. Soccer Federation and the U.S. Youth Soccer and the entities where stuff is working, where people are able to revitalize their in-town leagues, we need to package it and then we need to promote it and then we need to maybe even put policy behind it. I mean, one of the great things that came out of the, the, the Project Play Summit, too, is uh, I don't know if you saw it, but um, these guys who run the My Hockey Rankings uh, yep. website, which everybody in hockey follows and travel hockey follows to find comparable competition because they've got an algorithm that puts in all the scores. And it's, it's really, effective. that's pretty interesting. It's really you know, interesting. I mean, you know, travel team families don't want to spend all some, all this money to go two States away. And then it's a 16 to one blowout. That's not good. So this website's actually been really, really effective at creating even, even competition. The problem with it is they took that algorithm and then ranked the teams like, so there was a number one ranked, you know, ninth grade team or nine, nine year old team in the country. Right. And, and, and that's where the parents get a little bit crazy about things. So, and they lose the idea of development. So what was pretty cool is the summit, he announced they're going to get rid of the rankings, you know, and after the New York times wrote about it, I called him, he said, you know what, maybe we don't need to rank. We'll just do the algorithm or otherwise. And, and, and to me, that's a bit of a call to action for not just revitalizing the in-town leagues, but the folks who are pushing the travel team thing, being a little more responsible about the kind of environments they set up. I mean, do we really need rankings for kids at an early age? Do we really need national championships for kids who are nine and 10 and 12 years old? No, we don't. We really don't. And then we know that from, you know, I can talk to you about Norway a little bit. We know that from other countries that have showed some discipline about what is age appropriate. I, I, it's funny. I'm listening to hear that. And, and, um, and I, I'll be honest, I fall prey to that. I mean, I have a son who's on a, on a very competitive baseball team. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to East Cobb, which is like a very baseball, like Mecca outside of Atlanta. And it's a big, perfect game. Perfect game is like a huge national organization yeah. from the youth level all the way yeah. up through, you know, you watch the MLB draft and every kid who's drafted, you, they have a perfect game score and a ranking and their stats have been tracked since they were nine years old, all the way through these databases. I mean, it's a big deal. And when you go to the perfect game tournaments and you go down to Florida or you go to Atlanta and you play, you know, who's ranked what, you know, we know what our team is ranked and we know in pool play, if you draw a team from Miami, you know, they're the second best team and the fifth place team and the kids know it, the parents know it. Right. And I'll be honest with you, Tom, like the kids care. Yeah. They like when they come up with a mid season rankings and you went from seven to two, like they, they're like stoked. They're like, look what, and I guess part of me, I, I understand the, the found, you know, the fundamental element of they're young. Is it about chasing the rankings and the awards or is it about progress and development? Like I just said, yeah. I guess the devil advocacy question that I would ask you is, is it not good to, to, to make a correlation, to make a connection for these young kids between work and, and putting in the time and achievement and all that and having an outcome and having a trophy and having a reward and having a pat on the back and saying some, it's almost like someone saying, Hey, I recognize all the work that you've put in. Yeah. We're going to recognize it. We're going to, and we're going to acknowledge it. And like at a young age, be able to make that connection yeah. between the two. Is that not positive developments and positive for these kids as they get yeah. older? Yeah. The question is, do you need, do you need rankings and national championships and all that stuff to create that kind of environment? Right. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue, no, you, you really don't. Because I mean, when you look at the ranking, you look at the teams that are the, the best in the country, they're not actually the kids who have like worked the hardest. And what they are is they're like, it's, it's about recruiting. It's like the, the, yeah. you know, the coach is that's able true. to recruit, boy, cherry pick a kid here and cherry pick a kid here. And oh, yeah. pick a that's kid huge. And then smash them together. And, and like the, it, it literally says nothing about the quality of the coach. Other. Yeah. And you, you play, yeah. We'll play a team from Florida. Right. And when you pull up their roster, they got six kids from Louisiana, Georgia, to, and they call themselves the, you know, the Florida, whatever. Right. They're just bundlers. But, These coaches, yeah, not even I get that. they're just bundlers. I get that. <laughs> you know, so I, it's crazy. I mean, it, it's, and if you, so if you actually understand what those rankings are and how they're, how they're, they're organized, yeah. it doesn't mean that much. Look, in my book, I wrote about the number one ranked fifth grader in the country. And he was on the number one ranked team in, in Texas, right? And the center on that team was uh, this kid who, you know, was just taller than other kids. He was six two, and and he, why was he six two? Because he went through puberty at age five. Right. He's a, he's a freaking nature. So he went through he went through puberty at age five, and yeah. you had like a couple other dads who were just really on top of their their son to basically like child labor almost, you know. And they and they pulled kids from all over Texas and bundled this team. Well, like pretty much no one from that team went on to play in the pros at all. So what does it tell you that you have a number one ranked team or a number one ranked kid when he's in fifth or sixth or seventh grade? It literally says nothing. It just, yeah. it just, it's this snapshot of how, how crazy parents can be in, in terms of bundling talent. Yeah. My, my, my approach has always been, I want my kids to play with the, whatever the best collection of players at their level. I don't ever want them to feel like they're overwhelmed. I don't want them to ever be part of a group where they are just like clinging for life and they can't catch their breath and they're just, they're drowning, right? Like keep it appropriate. But at whatever level that is, I never want my kid to ever stand out amongst his peers. And I think that's an issue we have with a lot of parents. It's very easy in today's environment. There's a team on every corner. You can find a team that your kid is the star shortstop. Your kid is the quarterback. Your kid is the striker. Your kid, whatever the sport is, you can find a team and control that outcome. I've always been a believer where I'm going to put my kid in the most intense environment competitively within their ability, right? Within their level of ability. They're never going to stand out, but they're never going to be like clinging for air from the bottom. So the idea of finding these competitive teams, to me, the rankings, I agree with you. They're arbitrary. They're subjective. They mean nothing. But what I will say is I, I have found value in surrounding your children with other talented players who yes. work hard, where if they don't show yes. up every day, they're going to move down in the batting order. They're going to lose their starting spot. Like yes. not to just be able to survive on talent right. based on who you play with, and who you play against, I would rather them fail at 10, Mm -hmm. fail at 12, lose their sparting spot, give up four home runs, whatever it is. I don't want that to happen when they're 17 because I've controlled their whole life and I've always controlled the environment. They've always been the best kid on the team. They've never played these super teams out of Texas. Like I want my kids to experience that. So they know the real world and they're not 17 year olds on the, on the mound in high school. And they just played some, and they've never seen anything like it. And they don't know how to react. Like to me, that's the reason I always try to put my kids in competitive environments that they're suited for. Well, kids, I mean, we've known this with our kids and you know, you, you, they become like a peer group, 
Like, you know, what yeah. are the habits? What are the, what's yeah. the orientation of the kids? You say, oh, what's that old rule? Like you become. Yeah. You're uh, like the product of the closest five people five to people. you or whatever. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a good bit of truth to that. Right. No you know? doubt. So that is an argument. Um, yeah. I just think the question is whether you, whether we need, uh, whether the, whether the whole, nat, the whole, the super tournament thing at early ages is really the way to go. I mean, look, yeah. I, you know, I wrote about this in the New York times a, a couple of years ago about Norway, right? Norway, the most, they produce the best athletes in the world on a per capita basis. Kick everybody's butts in the Olympics, you know, 39 medals and the, the one before last, um, 2018, they won again this year in a range of different sports, little country, 5 million people, Right. And then you look at the summer sports. They've got the top beach volleyball team in the world from this crazy northern country. They've got uh, the top, some of the top track runners in the world. They've got really good. Other, they've produced. They've got one of the top young soccer players in Erling Holland, and one of the top female soccer players and Ada Hagerberg. And I mean, like, how does all this talent come out of one um, place the size of Minnesota? And it all starts with something called the Children's Bill of Rights in Sports that they have there. And it's a statement of like, look, um, it's like controls. It's like, you know, we're not going to have national championships before the age of 14, no regional championships before the age of of, of 11. Uh, Every kid should have an opportunity to play sports. The coaches should be trained. Um, The goal really up through age 12 or 13 is to develop a love of game, um, basic physical literacy. And then as kids move into the teenage years and, you know, some of them are going to flash real talent uh, and want to pursue being an Olympian or whatever it is. That's when they put them with the great sports scientists and the great coaches and, and, and they put them on that path, but it's not taking that experience that happens at 14, 15 years old and superimposing on kids who are six, seven, eight years old, like we do here by parents with no real guidance. So to me, that was that was really eye-opening, Greg, to see how 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 and Norway's not that much different than us. It really isn't. They're first world country with a lot of oil. We got a lot of oil. I mean, you know, they're very competitive. It's a volunteer-based system. I mean, it's it's dads like you and I coaching teams there where they're just trained. And they're um, but they they have 94% of kids playing sports in that country. And they go on to produce some of the world's best athletes. I'm like, you know what? They, they figure something out. So maybe we can be a little more controlled at like zero through 12, uh, you know, with, with our experience. Yeah. And my understanding is you were part, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is you were part of that committee that helped draft that bill of rights. Is that true? So what we did is I was so inspired by what, but Norway has done. I came right. back and said, we, we need something like this in this country. Right. Um, there is no ministry of sports in the U S like there is in every other country in the world. So, you know, um, so, I mean, project play has sort of been sort of like a de facto convener of all the influential parties. And I'm like, look, let's like draft a set of principles that every, a minimum set of things that every kid should have an opportunity, you know, health and safety, a voice, the design of experiences, multi-sport play, you know, uh, just simply an opportunity to play, package it up. And then let's see if anybody will support it. And the, the great thing, Greg, is we've gotten tremendous support the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee, the U S soccer to, you know, baseball. I mean, a lot of different sports, uh, you know, NGBs, um, ESPN, um, the city of Houston just endorsed 
the Children's Bill of Rights in Sports, Fairfax County, Virginia. And what that tells me is that people understand that A, sports should be accessible. Every kid should have an opportunity to develop through sports. And we got to do this better than we're doing it right now. So the Norway example, I'm, I'm curious, is that a government run program is that does that start at the government level and it's kind of laid out or is that just the way the system organically like how do they control one part of norway adopting the same rules like i think about here in america like it's so fragmented there's the grassroots there's local there's travel there's it's all happening and no one has say over the collective pie so in the example you're giving in norway is there this like ministry of sport at a high governmental level that's like laying out these rules that people have to adopt and live by? Well, it's a very actually democratic kind of process. So the, their, okay. their Bill of Rights for Children is voted on by all of the sport governing bodies in the country, plus each of their 14 or so states or counties. Um, so it, it's not something that's top down. It's not like imposed on you from the top. It's right. something that everybody says, look, kind of like, like with our Bill of Rights, okay, look, look at these principles. Do we believe that? Yes, we believe in that. And it gets codified. And then the, the entity that that codifies it would be their confederation of, of sports. And that has the Olympic Committee and then has all their national governing bodies of, you know, pick the sport. Right. Yeah. And then within the, each of those bodies, they are held responsible for, like, say, it's soccer. So in soccer, if you're going to be a member of that, their version of the U.S. Soccer Federation, you can't you can't throw national championships for eight year olds. You, you, you lose your membership. And if you lose your membership, then you lose access to, to, to funding to get, you know, like matching funding for building facilities yeah. in your, in your community. So there's a way it's just, you know, there's agreement. It's a lot. Everybody. It sounds a lot more regulated, right? When I, when I think of the tournaments yeah. that we go to in the organizations and the, in the, the affiliations of, of who's sanctioning them, these are just like independent exactly. leagues, organizations, they answer to no one, exactly. and I guess. And, and their philosophy is if you don't like our rules and you don't like our structure, don't play in our tournament. So I, I think like, as I'm thinking, like, how would we ever implement something so universal in America? Yeah. I can't help but think, even if we tried to like do that from the governing bodies, whether it's the NFL, they handled the entire pipeline of football, the U S you know, national soccer organized and all the way down the Olympics and everything. You're never going to stop me and you from saying, we're going to go create this competitive baseball league. And for the families that don't want to do this step-by-step, very regulated thing, they're going to come play in our tournament and they're going to pay us the money. Like I'm fascinated how they prevent those like pop-ups from getting outside of that structure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's easier in Norway, 5 million people. We're a nation of 330 million people, right? And we don't have a ministry of sports or some department of sports even coordinate activity. So it is a real challenge. However, I do think it can uh, more sanity can be brought to the youth sport environment. So totally say, say like us soccer, for instance, said, you know, to be a member of, of, of our federation, then you need to have, show us your coaches are trained, show us that you've got the right kind of insurance protection, show us that you've got concussion, you know, management stuff in place. Um, and if you do that, we'll give you incentives. We'll give you some money or, you know, um, or the best ones we'll give some money to, uh, so I, I think there, there, there could be some top-down leadership that can bring more coherence. It's not going to eliminate the complete independent actor out there, but it can lift the good actors, I think. Yeah. And parents want their kids to be associated 
with good actors. You want your kid to play for a coach who's trained in the right stuff, don't you? Right. So if you know that, um, then, you know, um, then maybe you're more likely, maybe the marketplace ends up shifting a little bit more toward, toward the, toward the better actors. And the, those who are complete rogues, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, more difficult for them to get insurance, for instance. Um, that could be a yep. real driver as yeah. well. So like a real, yeah, yeah. Like, an, like an incentive base, you know, there's incentives to, for doing it you know, the right way. Uh, something, uh, one of the last things I want to talk to you about before I, before I let you go. And again, thank you so much, yeah. Tom, for joining us here on, on you think, but we've continued to talk about, and you've brought it up a few times, you know, training coaches, you know, in, in my experience, just being around it now, you know, from the time I was a young kid all the way with my dad was my high school coach, you know, grew up around it, grew up how, and when I look around the youth sports world, like we have a youth sports coaching issue. Right. Like we have, and it, and it's not anyone's fault. I think right. we have a lot of, it's volunteerism, right. right? We have people that are doing the best that they could. My daughter asked me all the time. She's like, daddy, why don't you come, you know, coach my soccer team? Like you coach the boys teams. And my answer to her is Tal. her name is Talbot. I said, Tal, if daddy came and coached your soccer team, I couldn't get any of you better. Like that would be selfish of me saying, oh, I know everything. I'm going to come coach my team. Like I don't know enough about soccer at 10, 11, 12 years old, as you girls are really supposed to be learning the game, not just, uh, yeah, I could run the five-year-old soccer where it's just kick the ball, play duck, duck, goose, and and then go for ice cream. But like, I want you to really learn the game. So you need to play for people who really understand the game. But that's like me saying, I don't know enough about it. I'm just going to be dead. And then in other sports, I'm more confident that what I can do, but how do we find, or as you say, you know, train moms, dads, volunteers to really be able to understand not only teaching the game, the skills, but what it means to create culture, especially through those middle school years where it's less about learning to kick with your left and your right foot as much as it is teamwork and, and listening skills and, and, and life skills. Yeah. Like, that's hard. Yeah, it's hard. We can't even find enough high school coaches that can do it. And they're getting paid. Like, I think we have a coaching issue from yeah. the high school level down in America. Yeah. Uh, well, there, well so there's no silver bullet solution. I mean, but right. you know, one of those is recruiting from a wider population than you currently get. Right now, we get our coaches from like, okay, which dad or mom want to coach the right. team, right? Do like Cambridge did. Reach out to the high schools. Find find the soccer players. Bring them in. Pair them up with a parent coach. Someone like you may not know how to teach a first touch or to organize a practice but like they can handle that piece of it. They can be your assistant, you know? Uh, yep. So that's one piece of it. Um, uh, the second piece is, is particularly with women. I mean, we just don't have enough women coaches, like 75% of the coaches out there are men. So like, how do we more intentionally give women the confidence to, 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 to coach, right? How do we yep. package up? How do we package things up? I mean, you know, can you take, you know, give them like mojo skill, you know, like sort of like, you know, yep. uh, you know, resources, that give them the confidence to be able to put on a good practice. Um, I think the third piece is just having these national governing bodies push and maybe even require coach training. And then the fourth one would be park and recs. You know, this is the huge lever for change here. These, these, these fields that people use are used under certain conditions. And right now the park and recs are only saying pretty much, do you have insurance? And if a program says, yeah, I get insurance. Okay, great. You got access. Yeah. Why, why can't these park and recs say, okay, show us you've got insurance, show us your coaches are trained, just like minimum, minimum conditions, 
right? It's, it's, it's smart. It's really interesting. That's how you change things from a local level. You don't need some big federal yeah. or something to do it. You can just say as a community, Charlotte, North Carolina could say, you know what? We believe in, that our kids should have access to good coaches. We got all these fields everyone wants to use. If you want to use them, show us your coaches are trained. Guess what? The quality will go up very quickly. And unfortunately, you know, that takes a lot of work. Yeah, that's um, the problem. Everything takes a lot of work. No, but that, it's a whole. But I think it's a great idea. It, it really, I mean, to incentivize programs and leagues and teams to do things to a certain level of quality, a quality standard, in order to have access to fields, in order to have insure. I think those are all really they're easy. They're applicable. You know, they, there are a couple extra steps for the, you know, the administrators of the parks and rec or whatever these groups are. But yeah. I think those are really thoughtful and smart ways to make like actual real change. Yeah, exactly. Start local, start local, start wherever you live. Yeah. Get on your town rec board, have conversation with your park and recs people. You can do it. Yeah. It's like governing. You can make the biggest impact by doing it local. Everyone wants to start at the large level. Right. national just do it local it, it's funny though and, and the, the last thing and then i'm gonna let you go the biggest thing why a lot of people in my opinion don't get into coaching is because they don't want to deal with the crap from the parents right like why would i not me but like hypothetical like i think a lot of people i don't personally care so like i'm willing to do it and take some bullets and t- if you don't like it don't play on my team yeah but at the same point like a lot of people are like i'm not going to devote five days a week countless hours, not only at practice, but when you're away from the team, you're thinking about it. Like I'm trying to get this girl better, this kid better, this boy needs to, I need more playing time for him, but he's struggling. Like coaches that do it right, spend a lot of time and then to not have it appreciated, to not have the parents kind of meet you halfway and understand there's a method to what you're doing and just give you a pushback, pushback. A lot of people say, you know what? Somebody else deal with the headaches. I'm not doing this. It's not worth my time. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, there is a silver bullet solution there. Uh, and that is equal playing time up through age. You know, pick the age that you think is worth but 12, maybe it's 13, maybe it's 14. But this is what parents most agonize about. You see your kids stuck on the end of the bench. It sucks. It really, it hurts. I've been that parent. It hurts. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then you get into the politics of playing time. You know what? Every coach for kids 12 and under should be investing equally in every single kid on that team. And you can't do that if they're stuck at the end of the bench. It's not at age 12. It is not about winning the state championship. I'm sorry. You know, you can teach it. You can create a competitive environment as long as the kid is showing up to practice, you know, you know, engaging. Invest in every kid. I, you, you'll watch so much of the politics disappear. Yeah. The only, I guess the only thing I would say to that is, um, you know, again, I have kids at various levels of ability, interest, you know, all the spectrum, they're different ages. So obviously there's a lot that goes into that, but I guess my take would be there's a team for everybody, right? There is a team that is appropriate. And that's why I believe it's the parent's role to find an appropriate level team based on your kid's skill, interest, how many times are they practicing? Are they practicing away from it? Or are they just practicing when it's the team practice? So like where I maybe differ a little bit in that is like, I don't necessarily want my son, daughter, whoever it is, if they're doing work away and they're practicing at home and they're advancing at a higher level, I don't want them to be punished, right? Because in order to give someone else more playing time, it needs to come from someone else, right? So my thing is, there, every kid should play on a team or in a league or in a structure that's fitting for them. Yes. And if you're sitting on the end of the bench on a very competitive team where there is no equal playing time, 
instead of saying to the coach, no, take out the kid who's better. We all know he's better, but he needs to play less for my kid. My thought always, if it was my kid and as a coach on some of the teams and just as a parent on the others, I would take my kid out of that situation and put him on a team where he could play more. He could log more innings. He could get more at bats or get more touches or whatever the sport is. So like, that's kind of my, just my personal opinion on it because I want my kids to play. Yes. Cause that's the only way they improve. Right. But I don't think my kids should play if they're not better than the other kids. If my kid's not good enough to play on this team, I got to find them a team that's more appropriate. I agree with you fully that you gotta, we gotta match kids as best as possible. I mean, you shouldn't have teams teams where the tap one, you know, it's one set of kids away up here and the other one's way down here. Right. But I will say this though. I mean, you gotta remember before the, before kids hit puberty, um, it's, it's just, it's, there's an unfairness in sorting the weak from the strong because some kids just grow into their bodies sooner than other kids do. They're taller. You know, I've seen this. this is, the kids who make the tryouts, the kids who get the playing time, and when their kids are 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, they're the kids who happen to be just bigger. Or they're like, they're, their birth date is 11 months before some other kid. And the cognitive development. That's the Malcolm Gladwell outliers. Yeah. Have your, the, the hockey example up in Canada where they can predict who's right. going to make the junior national team in Canada based on their birthdays. It's, and it's, it's, it's called, yeah, the relative age effect. And it's, yeah. there are kids who, who, who are... And that's to me, that's discriminatory. If you are not investing in a kid who has an unfortunate birthday, you know, or the kid who just hasn't grown into his or her body, but may later on, and you're just not doing right by that kid, nor are you actually recognizing who's going to be the best athletes on the team. If you look at the NBA, remember the Chicago Bulls team, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, uh, all those guys are late bloomers. They all grow into their bodies later on. So like we should not, our system is too invested in the early bloomers before age 12. And yeah. so it's my perspective that every coach just need to like treat every kid, like invest equally in each kid, you know, and that, and that includes, that includes playing time. But, yeah. you know. And I would argue that is the rec model, right? The rec, at least the rec teams that we've been associated with our kids coming up through it. My daughter's soccer team. Now yeah. my boys, all baseball teams, basketball, there's, playing time rules. Everyone needs to play two quarters if it's basketball or, you know, three innings, but you can't play multiple in the outfield infield. And we would all do that juggling. So I I've definitely, and so there is that model out there that is for everyone. I just think, I guess where, where I just have a hard time wrapping my head around is like in that true competitive model where yes, you are signing up for this team under the conditions of this team is playing to compete. This team is playing to develop, to challenge the best other teams I guess my thought is, and, and my take to the other parents is like, if that's not what you want, then don't come to the tryout. Right. Right. right? Like no one's forcing you to play for that team. No, no. There's an alternative. There, wow. There's a, yeah. at least here in short. That, that's all. I guess yeah. that's where, and again, I have children at all ends of this spectrum. And if I had my daughter right now, she's nine. Yeah. She goes to her team's practice. Yeah. And then she goes to her team's game. That's about it. That's about the extent of her practice time. And, and we talk, and again, she's in third grade. Right. But we talk, I'm like, Talbot, like, you could really be good. You're fast. You're good. But like, you need to spend more time. Yeah. You know, Sally or, you know, your friend on your team who really scores the most goals and controls the ball and plays forward and all yeah. that. You see what she can do handling the ball. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't just wake up and do that. She's practicing. Yeah. She's playing. So like, I try to encourage her that. And yeah. then like, I have my, my boys 
they play baseball five nights a week Mm -hmm. so they can play on a competitive team and go out there. So I try to like bring that out in the kids where it's like, this doesn't just happen by accident. So if I put my, I guess my point is if I put my daughter and I thought she should go play for some travel soccer team and go around the state and play, she'd be overwhelmed. And then to expect her to get the playing time, the girl who's practicing five days a week and has really committed to getting better to lift my daughter, it's not at the expense of that girl. It's not her fault that she should lose playing time to accommodate my kid. Yeah. yeah. Like, I guess that's how I, yeah, your daughter should not be on that team. I mean, we need to have, and she's not teams. No. And I, and, but maybe in one day, I guess my point is though, maybe in middle school, it all play, it all levels out. Maybe she finds it at a later time. And it doesn't mean because she's not doing it at nine that she can't do it at 12 or she can't do it at 15. Whenever that light goes on or if it ever does, Hopefully she, you know, she picks up and she, cause she physically has the skill sets to do it. She's just kind of late to adopting that thing. And that's okay. So we put her on a team that right now is appropriate, right. but it doesn't mean it necessarily has to be the appropriate team yeah. in a few years. Yeah. As long as kids, as long as every kid has a team for them. Absolutely. Then, we, then we've got a good sports system. Then we're doing right. Totally. Kids. Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. All right. The last thing we call this our three before you go. Real quick, easy three questions we ask all of our guests. Um, again, Tom Ferry of the Aspen Institute, the Sports and Society Program. This has been awesome. Our viewers love hearing from people who study this field, who understand the nuance, who understand the complexity of it. So thank you so much. All right, I got three quick ones, and then I'm going to let you go. What is something in youth sports that you knew or wish was around when you were a kid? Ooh. Wow. That maybe's that maybe's around now. Yeah, that's around now. Well, I'll tell you what, I play a lot of beach volleyball now. I live in San Clemente, California. Love that. I, I love it. It's just awesome. And uh, I grew up 10 blocks from the beach in Florida, and I didn't know anything about volleyball. So that's awesome. Maybe that counts, you know. I mean, I, yeah, I love I that came along before Karch Karai. So uh yeah. Beach I love that. Love that. I, I beach volleyball is a blast. I'm not good enough to play it, but if you're on, it looks a lot of fun. Yeah, you are. Um, you got here, I'll, uh, I'll bring you up uh, my beach. Not a great, I'm not a great jumper, let alone in sand. <laughs> um, what, what is one piece of advice that you would give parents kind of navigating this crazy world of youth sports today? Uh, ask your child what they want. Don't assume that they want to play the same sports that you grew up playing. Don't assume that they have the same ambition um, and needs that you have in that moment, talk to them before every season between seasons. Hey, what do you, you know, what do you want to play? What are your goals? What good, what, what does good look like to you? Don't assume that they want the travel thing. Don't assume they want the rec thing. Just talk to them, you know, understand what their, what their human, their human needs are, uh, and then build from there as opposed to starting with yourself. This is the problem with youth sports is we call it youth sports, but it's largely designed by adults for adults. So talk to your kid. Kid led, parent supported. That's yeah. like our motto catchphrase here on You Think. So I love that. All right, last question. This is kind of the big one that we end with. What is the greatest challenge facing the youth sports experience of the future? Oh, wow. Um, I think it is going to be uh, free play. Um, youth sports has been turned into by our research 
parents are spending north of $30 billion a year. Uh, it is an industry that is larger than the NFL, far larger than the NFL, or any other professional sports league in this country. So there are a lot of entities from Chamber of Commerces to you know, hotel chains or otherwise who are, who are invested in building up the organized competitive model. I don't even like to use that word because pick a play can be pretty competitive as well, but the organized expensive model. And in the course of doing that, it pushes down to younger and younger ages. And what that ends up doing is crowding out free play, pickup games, just, man, just, you know, stuff that is like intrinsic, child-directed, child-owned, you know, we can sit around, we can complain about kids playing video games, but you know what FIFA and Madden do? is they give kids the ownership of the competition experience. They start and stop when they want. They play who they want. It's a social experience. Um, that's where pick-up play, unorganized play exists right now. And so we need to work really, really hard to make sure that these, there are these spaces and in, in, in the lives of kill, children to just make up games themselves. Yeah, we're, we're all guilty at that. I put myself at the top of that list. Everything is so structured. Every day when they come home from school, there is some sort of practice. There's some sort of where we have to be at what time, either dictated by ourselves or dictated by someone else, some other adult telling my kids or us telling our kids where to be and at what time and what to wear and what to do. And so I, I, I totally get that. When we have a free day, which unfortunately between the three of them, we don't have a ton of, but if we have that one Monday after school and we come home and we're like, guys, we have nothing. Once your homework is done, do what ever it is. You want to go outside and run around. You want to ride your bike. You want to play video games. You want to watch it, whatever. Just do your thing, chill out, take a break. I think that's super important. Well, Tom, I, I can't thank you enough. This conversation has been incredible. You guys at the Aspen Institute have just been great resources for us in the short time that we've known each other. Um, I thank you so much for, for joining our conversation here on You Think and your, your expertise and your insight and your perspective is just such a valued resource for all of our viewers and our listeners. And uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Greg, such an honor to be with you. Keep going, man. This is a terrific podcast and we'll support it however we can. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tom. And uh, look forward to talking to you soon. I hope you guys all enjoyed that conversation with Tom Ferry, the founder of the Sports and Society program alongside the Aspen Institute. Um, Tom just has decades of experience studying these trends and studying the best practices of youth sports. So to, to have him as a resource and just continue to add to our tool belt here on you think that we can continue to provide you guys the best resources to make the best decisions for your child and their youth sports experience was, uh, was just a great opportunity for us. So thank you so much to Tom. Um, as always, as expected, um, we're going to be joined by my producer, Tasha and, our audience questions for today and uh, look forward to hearing what everybody has. What's up, Tasha? Yeah, we got a couple of good ones for you today, Greg. One of the first audience questions um, says, as kids get older, the only metric of success usually is winning. And so they wanted to know as a coach, how do you keep fun and excitement alive for your teams? Yeah. So to me, and I've talked about this a little bit before here on the show, um, you know, to me, the winning is a byproduct. The, the winning is the end result, but it's not it's not the initial goal, right? To me, development at the youth age is the ultimate objective. It's to get every single individual player and then collectively the entire team from the moment you first, you know, took over to coaching this group to the day the season ends, how much individual and collective team growth can you see 
from this team. To me, that's the ultimate goal. If you do that every single day, if you don't, if you just stay committed to that process of grinding every day in practice and development and paying attention to details and coaching the details and holding them accountable to do things the right way every single time. If you do that with good discipline and good consistency, they are going to improve. They are going to develop. And then as a result, you are going to win a lot of games. So to me, that's the approach that we take. It's in that very, it's in that order. And, um, that's something that I just really believe in my heart is at the core of youth sports. How good can we make these kids? How much can we develop them as individuals? And then when we put that group together, you should be able to go out there and be highly competitive. You know, we don't win every game, but over time, you're going to win a lot more than you lose. If you take that approach. Is there certain things that you do as a coach, like to keep everyone having more fun and excitement when things get a little stressful? You know, I think every team is different. You know, I'm probably not the one to ask. I'm not a big fan of the whole, like, let's just have fun. To me, the fun is them seeing the growth, right? Mm. The fun is them seeing and feeling the improvement and feeling their confidence build. And maybe at the beginning of the season, something we were coaching them on, they couldn't do, but due to their hard work and due to their discipline and consistency and not being discouraged, all of a sudden now it clicks and they can do it. And all of a sudden, maybe at the beginning of the year, they weren't hitting the ball great. And now every time they get up, it almost feels like they, you know, every time they swing, they're getting a hit. Like to me, seeing their eyes light up and seeing their confidence and standing a little taller because they're connecting the hard work to the desired outcome, which is, yeah, it's fun to play in a game when you're hitting and it's fun when they hit you the ball and you catch it and you throw someone out or they throw you a touchdown pass. And it's fun for my daughter when, you know, she hadn't scored any goals and she starts working on her footwork and she starts practicing more. And then all of a sudden the next game she kicks it and she scores a goal and she runs and hugs her teammates. Like to me, that's fun. I am not the coach that your kid should play for. Just to be honest, I am not the coach your kid should play for. If practice is going to be recess. We are not going to play re- tag. We're not going to play freeze tag. We're not going to play duck, duck goose. Like I always say to parents and coach like kids, that's just not, it's just not me. It's not my style. I don't believe in it. I think kids get a lot of that. You mm. can go to school, you can go to gym class, PE recess. We're here to not only learn a sport, we're here to learn how to compete. We're learn how to be good teammates. We're learn We're learning how to work hard, deal with failure, teach with being held accountable you know, we're learning. That's what we're here to do. I believe personally, just from doing it and from living this, that when you bottle all of that up to me, that's fun. Yeah. That kind of leads into the second well, fan question really with physical activity is that some schools are experimenting with less homework and now instead are assigning physical activity and they want to know what's your take on that. I think it's a really interesting take. I think so often athletics get blamed for, you know, we have this like epidemic of, of anxiety and kids are overstressed and, and, mm-hmm. and we're trying to look at what the root cause cause of that. And there's a lot of social issues that affect that. There's a lot of, you know, society things we've been through, especially these last few years and, and kids feel that, you know, whether they're young or, or older in between. So I understand all that, but for some reason, sports is always blamed for it. You know, the, the coach is too intense. The practices are mm-hmm. too long. Should kids be playing competitive sports? Does winning matter? It's not but no one ever stops to think about the kids that just went to school for six hours and then they got four hours of homework. 
no one ever blames the math teacher for at the end of the day, assigning two tests, three hours of homework. And then tomorrow, like no one ever says that that's too much. So I, I think this is, this is really interesting. I think kids are at school for a long time. Academics is the ultimate education. Academics is the ultimate number one priority of all young kids, in my opinion. But I do believe when we start talking about well-rounded and balanced kids, mm-hmm. when school is over, they need time to do other things. And that doesn't mean just sports. They could learn an instrument. They could join the dance team. They can join the choir. They can join robotics clubs. I mean, there's all sorts of great activities after school for kids to participate in. That's not just sports. And I'm a big believer in allocating time when the school bell rings and school is over. There's got to be time for kids to do those other things. And mm-hmm. I applaud schools for for taking that steps and 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 trying that out. I'd be very curious. We'll follow along here on You Think and see what kind of results they get. How would a school assign physical activity? Like, how do you know if they're doing it? Is it film yourself? Turn it in? Like, I don't. I don't know. know. I'd be curious. To, I'd be curious to look more into it. I, I think um, my guess would be there's some sort of mandatory sport participation. You mm-hmm. have to. You know. You have to do maybe it's one season per sport or one, one, I mean, one sport per season, one, um, one sport per semester. I I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some sort of participation element to it where it's, Hey, at some point in this calendar school year, you have to play for one school sponsored sport, or maybe they can check that box. There's some sort of after school program. It's, you know, ultimate Frisbee club or, you know, Frisbee golf club. I don't know what, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be traditional sports or traditional physical activity as maybe you or I know it. There's a lot of ways to encourage kids to go out and, and be active and be a part of a group and, 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 and work at something. It doesn't have to be tackle football or travel right. girls soccer. It could be something right. a little more casual. And yeah, so maybe my assumption like, maybe would be, like duck, duck goose or something. Maybe they just assigned. Yeah. Duck, duck, yeah goose. They just, they're just not going <laughs> to, I'm just not going to coach it. the last fan question says when was the last time greg went on a family vacation that was not sports related it's a great question um i would say you know family vacation we we took the kids away we have a house um outside of charleston that we can drive to that we can get away so we went there for memorial day weekend we'll go again um you know in a couple weeks here so you know we we do stuff like that as a family that there's no sports we go down there we go to the beach we you know, spend a couple nights and just kind of hang. We try every year for spring break. Um, we take the kids to a different place, um, hmm. you know, for a full week. So we, we take our fair share of vacations, but spring and summer, most weekends, if it's not, and I've said this before, if it's not mother's day, Easter Memorial day or 4th of July, we are probably in some sort of weekend sporting activity of some capacity. Um, so spring break is a good opportunity for us to get away as a family. Those four weekends that I just mentioned, but between, between March and 4th of July, uh, there's not a lot of free, there's not a lot of free weekends. Wait. So when the Olson family takes a leisure vacation, you guys aren't playing any sport. Like you're not doing anything competitive. You're actually just sitting doing nothing. Or are you like well, no. racing to hey, the I beach? <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me. I, I'm not racing. I'm not racing anybody <laughs> these days. Um, no, I mean, we, we, we make the kid, you know, the kids bring their stuff and we'll have a catch or we'll play, you know, my kids like playing, you know, wiffle ball on the beach or, you know, we do relay races, you know, we, we're, we're not just like sitting around reading books. You know, right, right. right. So you're just competing not, with each other, just not with another team. 
it's yeah, different. It's just, we're just competing internally. It's super relaxing exactly. and no one gets mad and no one cries and gets mad at each other and argues about the rules. No, it's super casual. <laughs> our fa- as you, as you can expect, our family is super casual and, and right. uh, that's what I was just kind of go with, go with the flow. Right. Well, that's it for all the fan questions. If you guys want to submit more for next week, you can at Craig Olson or at you think on Instagram, TikTok or Twitter. And thanks as always guys for, for listening here on you think this journey has just been, has been really remarkable to see the following and and how much, uh, you know, the feedback we get from everyone just is, has been really cool to watch. Um, please, wherever you guys get your podcasts, uh, rate review, subscribe, Um, We really appreciate all the support. Continue to send us the fan questions and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. 